Welcome to your Breakthrough Blueprint. I'm your host, Becky Oste, a trauma-informed marriage coach. After a decade of failed efforts, I transformed my marriage, parenting, business, and health in just six months by learning how to repair my nervous system and move trauma out of my body. And now I'm here to help you do the same thing. Get ready to hear inspirational stories and walk away with tangible guidance on how to design your blueprint to your breakthrough life. Hello, guys. I cannot believe we're here. If you're listening to this and you've never met me before, I can't wait to get to know you. You're going to get to know me real fast and real well after today because I plan on sharing it all. And if you're already a friend of mine, I love you guys. So happy to have you back and just to learn even pieces of me you may have never known before. But the whole point of me sharing today is at the end of the day, I really just want three main things for every listener, just so you know where I'm coming from. My intention with this entire podcast is I I wish for you to know, one, just how collective our struggles are, that this illusion of isolation is really just that. It's an illusion. And we're so connected. That's number one. Two, I'd love to laugh together because, God, we need it. (laughs) We just take ourselves real seriously and laughter is therapy. So I'm here for it and I hope you're here for it too. And then three, just to have actionable hope, the motivation to start believing again in the possibility of your own breakthrough because you'll be hearing from a lot of people, including myself, who were all out of hope running off desperation and here to tell you a breakthrough is still possible. So I hear vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So I would love to start just by sharing my messy story, which is a tall order to summarize 33 years of life into 33 minutes. No pressure, right? Now I'll just pass to you the main points today that have really shaped who I am and the passion that I have to share with you with what's really become a key to unlock breakthroughs in literally every area of my life, beginning with my marriage. So I'll start with a riddle for you. What do you get when you combine a dry alcoholic and a super radical diehard church deacon? What do you think? The answer is me. (laughs) That's how I grew up. That's how I became a wine-loving Christian. But yeah, that's the household I grew up in. My mom's last drink was when I was a year old, but the codependent patterns, you know, outside the bottle were still very alive and well. And then my daddy Every free waking second of his life was spent in the Bible, at church, on the phone, praying with someone, or to my absolute horror, sharing Jesus with my friends and friends' parents. (laughs) Just remember like, ah, dad, you're killing my social life. (laughs) So I have to disclaim though, I love, respect, and adore my parents, and I would not trade them for the world. You know, they're still my number one pick. Every realm, every lifetime, every single time. My mom, she loved me so much. And she was that mom that I could tell anything to growing up. Like she'd be the one I'd called to pick me up from parties in high school and not tell my dad where I really was. 
And she knew every detail of every boyfriend, everything I did, never felt judged by her. So my mom's amazing. And to this day, she's my treasure. But anyone who knew me growing up knew I was a total daddy's girl. You know, my dad used to write me love letters all the time. And he was never shy in telling me how much he adored me. He would play with me, like play Barbies with me, let me paint his nails, like do movie nights with me, take me on trips, just me and him. He really was the best dad ever. But I am a big believer that two things can be true at once. So truth also is as many amazing qualities that they each had. I grew up in an environment of passive aggressive communication and constant tension between my parents. Yeah, you know, it's just the tension that you can feel it and nobody talks about it. Like you could cut it with a knife. But I actually don't remember ever seeing my parents kiss or hug or even touch. Now come to think of it, like they didn't sleep in the same room. They didn't hang out with each other. It was just total roommate situation. But that's all I knew. So to me, that was normal. I remember my mom being anxious like all of the time. And I remember my dad talking about Jesus all of the time while my mom rolled her eyes at him. (laughs) So how all of this shaped my psyche and my nervous system, those are episodes for another day. But fast forward, I went to VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, for my first year of college. And on the third day of college, I got the news that my dad had suddenly passed away of a heart attack. And it feels like a second ago. So this was my first, we'll talk about this later, what a big T trauma is. But this was my first like major trauma that I ever went through. And I remember slumping against the wall and listening to my mom on the phone just in tears saying, Becky, I'm so sorry. Daddy's gone. I'm so sorry. He died of a heart attack. He's gone. He's gone. And I froze. Like I was just in this like catatonic, frozen, robotic state. And I remember my aunt and uncle walked in the room while I was getting that news because they had been told what happened and came to be there for me. And they were like, Becky, do you want to come home with us? And I just said kind of robotically, like, no, I just, I need to go to class. And I literally went to class and I went to three classes that day. I remember in the third class, it was like the introduction to this course. I don't know why they were talking about this already, but they were talking about like high blood pressure and heart attacks. And that's how my dad died. And I, all of a sudden it just like hit me. Like I just started sobbing. Like I turned to my friends that I had just met at orientation. I was like, guys, my dad died. And they were like, when? And I was like, like today. And they're like, what are you doing here? Like, and it just kind of snapped me out of this catatonic state. And I remember calling my aunt and uncle and being like, I'm ready for you to come get me. Can you pick me up? And That whole week, that whole month, that whole period of my life was honestly kind of a blur, but they were a part of, very involved in a church down in Richmond, and that was the church that I actually met my now husband at. So I actually, he remembers meeting me before I remember meeting him. So the story goes, he actually swears that he refed one of my intramural soccer games at VCU, and 
he remembers seeing my hot pink booty shorts that I guess I was wearing that night. And he remembers thinking I was cute. And we met at a, a house party at college once. And he said he met me there. But I remember meeting him the third time at a New Year's Eve party. And it was like a formal party in Philly. And I <laughs> we had like a really bad first impression of each other. Guys, he was in this like ugly brown suit and he was on the shy side. I'd say he wasn't dancing. So I was just like, I was looking at some other guy that night. I was not interested in him. And then me on the other hand, he looks at me. I have these like, God, like tight Shirley Temple banana curls, like all over my head. If you know what I'm talking about, like it was just, I thought I looked so hot and it was so not. And so he had a not great impression of me either, but I do remember we happened to sit down next to each other at the same table and we started talking about soccer, found out he was really into it. And I was like, oh, okay, I can vibe with this guy on this. And we decided when we'd get back after break that we would play intramural soccer together. Fast forward, that was really when I first noticed him. Like, I remember it was like yesterday and seeing him play, if you don't know my husband, he's a beast on the soccer field and I was like hello like who is this it all of a sudden I was like I would love to get to know you and so fast forward fell in love with him when we started dating it was great when it was great but very early on I started noticing what became the toxic dance years later what ended up escalating to are almost divorce. And so I want to just take you back and give you a couple of examples of where I now see the seed planted and starting to to grow and where I wish I had recognized earlier and known the work that I know now, but everything, you know, is 2020 vision and I hope to save you 20 years of, you know, suffering. But I remember when we started dating, I would panic over like really small things like if he didn't return my text my mind would go to is he mad at me is he bored of me is he gonna break up with me like I just didn't know how to be okay in those situations and I honestly I just didn't have the awareness that growing up in a broken home and the sudden unexpected death of my father during my first week of college was a recipe for some deep abandonment triggers and codependent coping systems and really unhelpful defense mechanisms. So even after getting engaged, I thought the ring on my finger would like magically wash away the lack of confidence that I had, but it didn't. And I remember this one time we got into this fight over a stupid haircut. You know, he asked me to cut his hair and I didn't want to because I was a perfectionist and like, I couldn't handle him being disappointed in me or upset with me. And guess what? That's literally exactly what happened. I was cutting his hair in the driveway. And when I was all done, he went inside, looked at the mirror, came out completely different mood. <laughs> and he was pissed. He was he thought I was being careless and just didn't care that it looked bad. And here I am honestly doing my best, but I'm just not a hairdresser and I shouldn't have cut his hair in the first place. But I remember that small interaction turning into this super big, like weird energy between us that basically led to me getting angry and like disproportionately afraid. 
and begging him for affirmation. And I remember him getting more and more closed up by the second, just sending my mind straight to, ah, like, how are we going to make it through this? He hates me. He doesn't want me. I messed up. What's wrong with me? All the things. And I couldn't slow my mind down. And his response to my need for affirmation was, I just need some space right now. Uh, knife to my heart. Worst thing I could have heard. It just validated all of my fears that it's over. It's over. This man who put a ring on my finger, it's over, over a haircut. But it wasn't. Our engagement was super short. It was only three months long. My family literally thought I was pregnant, but it was actually the exact opposite. The campus ministry, the church that we met through, had a very strong purity culture. And we decided that we were going to wait until marriage to have sex. So here we are, these babies. I was 21. He was 23. We're engaged, incredibly attracted to each other. And to be honest, we were just not trying to put marriage off any longer than we had to. We had already been dating for three freaking years when he proposed. Like, that was long enough. (laughs) And my friends, they thought I was insane for not, you know, testing the car before I drove it. But... That was something that was important to us at the time. And in retrospect, this is also another podcast episode for another time. But as much beauty as there was in the way we built our relationship, I can see now how that extreme purity culture that we met, dated, and grew up within absolutely influenced a lot of the intimacy blocks I experienced once we got married. So fast forward, month one, already married month one into our marriage, I remember going on a girl's trip to a lake house, which honestly sounds like divine right now. Like, seriously, I would love to go to a lake house right now with a bunch of girlfriends. So if you're listening out there and that sounds great, DM me, (laughs) let's plan a trip. But at the time, I was dreading this trip, like absolutely didn't want to go. Felt like I had to the whole drive there. I couldn't wait to be back home for this weekend to be over. And when we were there, I literally broke down when I was at that lake house surrounded by all these girls away from my husband. And I was mortified, just like embarrassed more than I can describe because I started crying like a kindergartner at our first sleepover and I had no idea what was wrong with me. And so we had this growing dynamic over the years of what I called at the time, chase and run. Like I'd chase, he'd run. (laughs) And later as my healing journey progressed, I picked up different labels that seemed to fit us like codependency and addiction, anxious attachment style and avoidant attachment style. Guess who's who, right? The toxic dance we had just intensified and escalated over the years. And we tried absolutely everything from therapy to couples counseling, marriage retreats, workshops, books, podcasts, groups, spiritual mentorship, courses. Prayed with all of my heart. I said the affirmations, like talked it out, journaled, you name it, I tried it. I was desperate, desperate as hell. Somebody could have, you know, said eat macaroni and cheese upside down and I would have done it because I was that desperate to save our marriage, willing to do anything. And then there I was, 10 years, an insane amount of effort, 
and two kids later, separated from my husband and to my devastation, looking up the cost, legal steps, and biblical grounds for divorce. And that's when I stumbled upon this buzzer beater Hail Mary program to teach me how to save my marriage by moving trauma out of my body. And I remember thinking, well, if this doesn't work, at least in good conscience, I can say I did absolutely everything I could in my power to give this my all. But what took place after that, guys, it was nothing short of a miracle. It was the only thing that brought about the clarity, trust, communication, amazing intimacy and vibe in our home, like the dynamic that we had just tried so hard for our entire marriage to cultivate. And today I can honestly tell you that he is my best friend and what we have been able to rebuild is truly and honestly a thousand times better than the honeymoon phase. Like, oh, another story for another time. But yeah, definitely better than the honeymoon. (laughs) It was this experience. It was this breakthrough that I'd spent a decade searching for and learned how to unlock in a freaking eight-week program. (laughs) Like, it was this. It was this embodied understanding that ignited in me this undeniable unmistakable certainty that I just had to get this out into the world. It was this moment of, like, I have no clue how I'm going to do this, but there's no chance in hell I can keep this to myself, even if it just saves one wife like me, a decade of suffering that I could have avoided if I had found this sooner. So it's funny looking back now at the work I'm doing and what I'm so passionate about because ever since I was a little girl, I was always fascinated by like the study of the human body that had always been this naturally nerdy area I was drawn to. I remember, I don't know if you did this, but in sixth grade, we had to memorize all the bones in the body and I would like race my classmates on who could say them all the fastest, which now I don't even remember how many bones there are. Got to Google that. But I remember loving that game Operation. You remember that game where we would like pull the little bones out of the the guy on the operating table and if we touched the metal it would bzz, make his nose light up. I remember that story being fascinated by that story of that girl who lost her arm to a shark bite. I'm blanking on her name right now, but I remember her story of saying when the shark literally bit my arm off, I didn't scream, I didn't cry, and I didn't feel any pain. It actually went numb. And I remember just thinking like, what? Like how? What's happening in the body? Like how did it do that? Like what does that mean? Just wanting to understand how insane that is that the human body did that. So what I dove so deep into learning after this breakthrough in our marriage just resurrected from the dead is I started learning, investing my time, money, and energy into understanding exactly what I'll be bringing you on this podcast. You know, today I'm just going to give you a brush stroke. I'll give you this bird's eye view understanding of the kind of work that I'm doing with women that's changing lives and saving marriages and reversing generational trauma. It, it's truly, it's 
the work I get to do, it's, it's more than just marriage. Like it trickles into healing financial and spiritual and emotional wounds and not only in my clients, but spilling into their children and husbands and moms and sisters and best friends' lives as well. But where I'll start is, I mean, when people ask me, like, what is it exactly that you do, Becky? Like, that's the most loaded question ever. But the best way I can summarize it is, honestly, just borrowing the title of Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. You know, he's a leader in the industry in the study and treatment of trauma, and he's got this number one New York Times bestselling book you've probably heard of called The Body Keeps the Score. That title is really the best summary I can give to the kind of work I get to do with women. It's like the thesis statement of my entire program. And what I tell women is what you need to know in order to save your marriage and reverse generational trauma you know, attract financial abundance, live this life authentically aligned and in your purpose, exist and expand as this grounded, joyful, integrated human being. It all hinges on two things. One, the awareness that your body keeps the score of the trauma that you've survived. And two, the understanding of how to move trauma out of your body in a society of individuals that are so exceptionally and unconsciously detached from themselves. And so what does that mean exactly? The body keeps the score. Sounds like a cool book title, but I want to unpack it. But in order to answer that, I think it's important to back up for a second and first answer the question, like, what is trauma? It's a word that I'm sure you've heard. It's a buzzword today. And in some people's opinion, it's a term that's overused. It's the source of so many memes and jokes and, you know, TV shows, social media. It's really a part of our current mainstream vocabulary on a level it's never been before in history, which I think is fantastic. But with all things, you know, it can be taken to an extreme, used out of context or just thrown around without a true understanding of the definition. So let's come to a collective definition today of trauma. You know, what I like to tell people is from all my research and case studies and further education and all the definitions floating around out there on the world wide web, the simplest definition I like to give people of trauma is a response to a deeply distressing or disturbing experience that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope. The key phrase here is overwhelming the ability to cope. It's really not about the event itself so much, but it's about your unique threshold experiencing that event. What overwhelms your unique capacity to cope with that experience? So let me give you an example. So I remember being a co-counselor with my good friend Marissa for my church's teen camp back when I lived in Seattle. And we were in the same cabin. We were co-counselors. We had the same group of girls, you know, same amount of time we were there, all the things. And my good friend, Marissa, she was living her best life. (laughs) When we arrived at camp day one, I asked her, so how are you feeling? And with the biggest, most genuinely cheerful smile on her face, she was like, oh, Becky, I wait all year for this week. 
I'm so excited to be here. This is my favorite place on earth and I just can't wait. I'm so happy. I was like, <laughs> and then me on the inside. On the other hand, this was my absolute nightmare. Like here I was embarrassed to be a grown woman who still had separation anxiety from her husband. So a whole week on a bunk bed separated from my husband and sleeping in a cabin with nine very loud 15-year-old girls who would not go to bed when you told them to. Knowing I had a whole week ahead where there was no break, no alone time, no wine, no phone. I literally had an anxiety attack my first night there. Like, could not fall asleep. And here I was at 3 a.m. and everyone's passed out. And I'm, like, doing the silent, no-tear sob, just hyperventilating, feeling so trapped, living my worst nightmare. Same experience, completely different subconscious blueprints that shaped Marissa and I from entirely different life experiences growing up until that point. This was her happy place. This was my living hell. What was her healing was my trauma. So it's really not about the event itself. It's really about your unique blueprint and your capacity and your threshold. So I get asked, how many different types of trauma are there? You may have heard the terms before, big T and little t traumas. So we'll define those, but there's also a third main type of trauma that's a little less familiar, and that's called complex trauma. So let's unpack. Big T trauma typically refers to a big single incident, like usually life-threatening. Think of things like a plane crash, uh, physical or sexual assault, natural disaster, a very violent crime, a life-threatening illness or war, combat, things like that. Little T trauma doesn't necessarily threaten your life or your body, but maybe a better description is it's ego-threatening. Like Some examples include interpersonal conflict, infidelity, breakup, losing a job, losing a pet, being rejected by a friend group, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, moving, like legal trouble, financial difficulty. These are a couple of examples. And societally, you know, big T traumas, they tend to get more empathy. They're more acceptable cases of trauma, so to speak. People don't blame you for being affected by them as much. Little t, however, responses can tend to get more rationalized and seen as like an overreaction or being dramatic. And this can lead to a lot more damage because healing is found in empathy and connection. And so let me give you an example of how society can impact whether you heal quickly or you deepen the trauma on your body. So I remember in college, I studied abroad in Chile, and in 2010, there was an 8.8 earthquake, and it was my like first week there. And I was camping in the mountains with some friends, literally in a tent, and I get woken up by this 8.8 earthquake. And my first thought was like, am I on the subway? Like, am I on the metro? I was literally like swaying very violently back and forth. And that was my first ever earthquake. And I was on TV for that. I was on CNN. Like this interview is still floating around there somewhere. But there was so much like, oh my gosh, like that must have been so traumatic. Like that must have been terrifying. Like 
how are you doing now? I can't believe you survived that. Like so much validation that helped me in my experience realize like, wow, that really was a big event. Like it makes sense that that was so scary. And I was able to move through it pretty well. And I, you know, didn't stay stuck and living in fear. I'm able to still travel, right? And go camping. Like it didn't ruin the rest of my life. I had a lot of support right away. But there's other things like the little T traumas that for me, there's been a lot of psychological, emotional abuse that I've gone through in different settings over the years in different relationships. One example, I remember a time I got like publicly shamed during this church internship for forgetting to set up a follow-up Bible study with one of the campus students. And this woman came at me so hard in front of all of the other interns and was like, why didn't you do that? What were you thinking? Like, what was going through your head? Like, you never forget to do that. She was going hard on me. And I was in tears, like questioning if God was mad at me and if I was doing enough to get to heaven and if this particular mentor hated me, if all the other women thought I was an idiot. But Nobody there validated that pain. It was actually the opposite. People were like, oh, this is good for your character. Like, this is shaping your character. It's good for you. And (laughs) I mean, it did shape my character. It reinforced people pleasing and perfectionism for sure. But I wouldn't say it was good for me because shame never is. It feels crappy for a reason. Also another topic for another episode. So that's the difference of how society can help either heal quickly or more deeply ingrain a trauma. It took a while for me to bounce back from that. And there was, I invited a lot more instances of that, of psychological abuse than I would like to even admit, but that's life and that's part of my story. And now I'm really passionate just about having conversations about it. So the third kind of trauma we're going to define before we land this plane is complex trauma. And that refers to exposure to multiple traumatic events, usually in this invasive interpersonal nature. So think of these events, they're usually severe, pervasive, but childhood abuse, neglect or abandonment, ongoing domestic violence, repeatedly witnessing violence or abuse, sex trafficking, torture, kidnapping, slavery, being a prisoner of war, or profound neglect, just to name a few. So now that we've defined trauma, how does our body keep the score of it? Like, what does that mean? When you go through something traumatic, it it has a direct impact on your physiology. It alters your brain, your breath, your biochemistry, your immunity. There's so many ways it literally alters the makeup of your physical body. And when we notice our physical symptoms, especially in Western culture, what's our knee-jerk reaction? Like if you're at work trying to get something done by a deadline, all of a sudden a migraine sets on. We're like, ah, terrible timing, inconvenient. Who has an aspirin? Who has a Tylenol? Like our knee-jerk reaction is just to get rid of it, make the pain go away, you know, prescribe something or just take care of the symptoms. We treat our symptoms kind of like these pesky little house rats that were just like shooing out with a broom, like, get out, get out, get out. Ah, You don't belong here. Like, what are you doing here? Intruder, invasive. And what 
I would love to invite you just to consider as we continue to get to know each other, you know, one episode at a time is just to consider what if my anxiety, my autoimmune symptoms, my headaches and back pain and that freaking eczema on my hand, what if these were more than just distracting inconveniences interrupting my life? Like what if these symptoms are actually the wisest messengers that I've ever paid attention to, portals into our deepest healing, holding these keys to unlock our specific blueprint to our unique breakthroughs. Just a thought to ponder, and I want to leave you also with a practical that you can ease into a little bit more this week. And it's just an invitation to take the posture of a curious observer this week. You know, this is something you can do wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're with. I'm not about jumping through the hoops. We've done that long enough and we're still spinning our wheels. So let's keep it simple and powerful. My invitation to you is to, with curiosity, simply take notice of your body this week. Check in with yourself at least once a day and notice. Where do I feel pain in my body? What feels tight or achy or out of alignment? And are there any breakouts or rashes? Like, just notice. And without any judgment, just with curiosity, you know, you might even say to yourself, like, hmm, interesting. And then if you want to, you can ask yourself this one powerful question. What do I need right now? And just see what comes up. Maybe it's a break. Maybe it's a nap. Maybe it's, oh my gosh, food. Wow, yeah, haven't eaten since 9 a.m. and it's 4, right? Just asking yourself, getting conscious to what do I need right now? And I'm going to bank on assuming that you don't need any more advice. You don't need to read any more books. You don't need more information. You've got enough of that in order to transform your life. What you probably need is to begin asking yourself and letting others ask you more powerful questions so that you can understand yourself and your purpose and your body. So you can understand your unique, precious, one in a million blueprint to your most aligned, authentic, and amazing breakthrough life. So I'm so excited you're here on this journey with me, and I hope this deposited something real in you today. And in honor of my first ever solo podcast, I want to share something with you as we end that's incredibly sacred to me. And these are words that could not be more personal. They're words that are forever etched into my psyche and my soul. And these are actually the last words that my dad ever said to me before he passed. It was on AIM Instant Messenger, if you know what that is. Back in the day, we had screen names. Mine was Navy Baby 75. <laughs> so my dad was an electrical engineer for the Navy. But the words that he said to me before we signed off that night and right before we lost him was, Becky, there is no one on this planet like you. Factories make things that have numbers. But God made us individual with our own unique DNA, unique personalities, and unique spiritual gifts. There's no one else like you, sweetheart. So whether you had someone to tell you that before or not, I want to leave it with you right now. If you're listening, I know it's not by accident or coincidence. 
if you made it to the end of this, it's because you leaned in. Something in you resonated with something in me. And I have to tell you before we end that there's truly no one on this planet like you. You are a unique individual with your own unique DNA, unique personality, and unique gifts. There is no one else like you, my friend. No one that can leave the same thumbprint on this planet that you're able to make. And my biggest wish for you is that you not only find yourself, but learn to truly, madly, deeply, radically love and accept that person that you find. So I love you. Thank you so much for being with me today. I can't wait to get to know each other better. And I will see you on the next episode. Talk soon. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I love and appreciate you so much. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and leave us a rating or review to help others find the show. To learn more about working with me or joining the I Do Breakthrough community, head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Lee Aste, where you can learn all about my program in my bio. And please send me a DM with your takeaway from today. I'd be honored to connect and know what landed for you. I hope you have an amazing day and I'll chat with you next week. Thank you.